Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 48, The Trial of the King, Part 3. In the last episode, we explored the appeal to the people, the national referendum supported by leading Girondins to determine the fate of the king. We also examined the support for direct democracy amongst the leading factions of the revolution as well as discussed the competing theories as to just what motivated the sudden Girondin embrace of both the appeal to the people and the issue of clemency more broadly. In this episode, we're going to be covering the conviction and sentencing of the king, not only how the deputies came to find Louis guilty, but also their deliberations over whether or not the people should be consulted. We'll also unpack the debates surrounding the various forms of punishment for Louis XVI. This will set us up nicely for the fourth and final part on the King's trial, which will examine his treatment in prison, his punishment, and finally the implications and impacts of the trial both domestically and abroad. As a reminder, for patrons with early access, episode 49 is waiting for you right now. Now, before we get into it, just a few quick notes including how you can feature in the show. Firstly, thank you so much to those people who have been telling friends and family about the podcast, sharing great history on social media, and helping the show through some other means. Secondly, a reminder that I am officially planning to do a Q&A episode for episode 50, so if you have questions or queries about the revolution, please send them in. Anything up until and including the King's Trial is fair game, so if you have any questions, now is the time. If you want to feature in the show, you can send your questions in by voice message, and there's instructions on how to do that on greyhistory.com as well as the Patreon page. Thirdly, I am going to trial some talkback radio regarding the King's Trial. I want to hear from you your thoughts on the trial of Louis XVI. Perhaps you agree with the radical Montagnards who argued that no trial was needed at all and that the deputies should have skipped straight to the king's execution. Perhaps you believe that a trial was illegal and biased and that Louis was never given a fair chance. Potentially, you agree with the idea of a national referendum with the proposed appeal to the people, or perhaps you have your own suggestions on its design. Potentially, you disagree with the king's execution, pointing to some of the consequences that result. Whatever the case may be, there are instructions on the website and on Patreon if you wish to feature on the show and provide your thoughts on the king's trial. Anything to do with the king's trial is fair game, and then I'm going to bring it all together and add it to episode 50, which is the question and answers episode. You'll be able to either send in a message or if you want, you will be able to leave an audio recording, hence why I'm calling this Talkback Radio Meets History Podcasting. So again, if you want to either share an opinion on the King's Trial, or submit a question for episode 50, head to greyhistory.com or see the associated posts on the Patreon page. Finally, members of the Grey History community on Patreon, do keep your eyes on the Patreon page as there has already been some announcements regarding upcoming collaborations that I'd like some ideas on, as well as future behind-the-scenes episodes which will be coming out in January. Of course, if you're enjoying Grey History, the best way to help ensure that there will be more Grey History for you to enjoy is by supporting the show on Patreon. Grey History is only possible thanks to the support of the community, and as a thank you for joining the community, you'll receive an ad-free feed, access to hours of bonus episodes and other exclusive content, and of course, the warm fuzzy feelings of helping to keep one of your favourite independent podcasts on the air. Certain tiers also get early access to new episodes, amongst other cool perks. So, 
If you want to binge listen to five bonus episodes right now, not to mention dozens of mini episode extras, support the show on Patreon for as little as $2 when a new main episode is released. For the price of half a cup of coffee, you're not going to find better value elsewhere. A warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show, including the new Virtuous Citizens, Yuri, Brian and Harvey. Also, another warm welcome to the newest True Revolutionaries, Asad and Tara Lee, both of whom had access to this episode a couple weeks early, thanks to being on the True Revolutionary tier. Finally, welcome to Monica and Joel, who now join Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim, Mark, William, Laura and Daniel as the amazing champions of the people. Finally, thank you to the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy and Charles. Anyway, that's enough from me. So Happy New Year, and let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 48, The Trial of the King. Part 3. By the middle of January 1793, the convention had been focused on the King's trial for more than two months. At the start of November, the deputies had grappled with the questions of whether or not the King could and should be tried. Having concluded that he could be held accountable, and rejecting radical proposals for skipping a trial altogether, the representatives of the nation had spent most of December examining the crimes of the king. The rap sheet was long. Dozens of charges were brought against the former monarch. According to the prosecution, Louis had attacked the sovereignty of the people. He had aided the enemies of France. He had acted against the constitution in a multitude of ways. And, perhaps most troubling, he had caused the blood of Frenchmen to flow. The charges were considerable. His actions were treasonous, and under the law of the land, they warranted the sentence of death. On the 11th of December, the king had appeared before the convention to defend himself. Performing rather well, the king appeared once more on the 26th, this time with the assistance of lawyers to plead his innocence. For more than a month, the trial, although unorthodox, had a somewhat regular progression. Yes, the National Convention was acting as prosecution, judge and jury. Yes, the proceedings were occurring outside a traditional court, but it wasn't like the script had been completely thrown out the window. Trying a king, the former sovereign, was always going to be an unorthodox process. Yet, for all the unusual circumstances and proceedings, The hallmarks of a normal trial were present nonetheless. The suspect was indicted, the prosecution asked questions, and the defence replied in kind. But, since the end of December, the already historic and unprecedented trial had evolved in an extremely unorthodox way. Many Girondin deputies, for a variety of disputed reasons, favoured clemency for the king. Although any other traitor would have been executed swiftly, these deputies sought a lesser punishment, perhaps imprisonment or exile. However, arguing against his execution was seen by some as imprudent and impolitic, and thus a vote in the convention presented a myriad of risks for those supporting clemency. With the convention potentially voting to execute the guilty king, an alternative pathway had to be found. Ideally, a pathway that would allow the Girondins to simultaneously save the king while presenting themselves as the true champions of the people. Thus, on the 27th of December, 1792, Girondin deputies came forth to propose an alternative to the convention 
determining the fate of the king. They came forward to argue for an appeal to the people, a national referendum in which the people would directly determine the king's future. Who better to determine the destiny of the king of the French than the French themselves? But the deputies of the mountain had other ideas. They warned that a national referendum risked civil war, threatened the republic, and ultimately was nothing more than a mechanism in which to sanction the king escaping justice. Thus, the Montagnards rejected this idea outright. Vicious attacks and rancorous debates characterised the weeks that followed, just as they had done in the first months of the convention. Both sides accused the other of all sorts of self-interested treachery and deception as they sought to achieve their own political objectives. The Girondins accused Robespierre and his allies of desiring supreme power. They warned that the architects and defenders of the September massacres were seeking to install themselves as new monarchs or potentially crown their own puppet, like the king's cousin, the former Duc d'Orléans, now himself a Montagnard deputy in the convention. The Montagnards returned fire. Seeing the appeal to the people as a way to legitimise clemency for the treasonous king, they accused the Girondins of secret royalism. The mountain rejected the rationale for the appeal to the people. They denounced those advocating for mercy for the monarch, and they attacked their enemies for conspiring with the court, the emigres, and even foreign powers, as they supposedly betrayed the people on behalf of aristocrats and elites. Outside the halls of power, the stability of the country, which had been fragile in recent years, was eroding further. Royalist demonstrations and riots were few, but concerning nonetheless, as was renewed agitation in the streets of Paris. As hunger set in over the winter of 1792-93, the capital's Saint-Culottes and other revolutionaries were demanding swift justice. That justice was a reference not just to the king, but also hoarders, speculators, and anyone else seen to be betraying the welfare of the people. Furthermore, as the convention remained hesitant to embrace radical economic policies, such as fixing the price of foodstuffs and commodities, calls for actions circulated in the streets. Talks world of not only the need to remove the treasonous king, but the treasonous deputies of the convention as well. With the nation facing numerous hardships, including inflation and the first signs of renewed military setbacks, the representatives of the nation could not linger on the king's trial indefinitely. As such, while the deputies did love the sound of their own voice, the trial had to end. France faced innumerable challenges. It faced existential threats. And each day that passed without a resolution was a day that the fledgling republic could not afford to lose. Thus, by the middle of January 1793, the convention decided that it was time to bring the trial to an end. Having spent the opening weeks of the trial determining the proper procedure to try a king, it might come as a surprise that procedure was back on the agenda. The deputies had to determine not only the king's guilt or innocence, but also his punishment, and who should decide those two things. As the debates continued as to what was to be done, new proposals and suggestions were added into the mix. Girondin deputies debated amongst themselves if the appeal to the people should permit the nation to confirm the convention's verdict, or instead, if the referendum was to determine the king's punishment. Others came forth with procedural changes, such as the Girondin deputy Longjeunet, who suggested that the conviction of a king should only be enacted by a supermajority of two-thirds. Admittedly, a rather inconsistent suggestion given the monarchy had been abolished by a simple majority, a contradiction that Danton was quick to highlight. The mountain was not immune to its own creative suggestions. Some proposed that if the king was found guilty, there would be no need to vote on anything else, 
because the only just punishment for someone guilty of treason was an appointment with the guillotine. If it sounds like the deputies were making it up as they went along, that's because they were. Such is the nature of the trial of kings. Eventually, and I do mean eventually, the deputies agreed on a pathway forward. It was a compromise between the warring factions, and, like most compromises, it was ugly. Firstly, the deputies would vote on whether or not the king was innocent or guilty. Secondly, if the king was convicted, they would vote on the appeal to the people. That appeal would be a national referendum in which male citizens would ratify the convention's verdict. It would not be a vote to determine his punishment, but rather a vote to confirm the convention's decision. Finally, should the proposed referendum be rejected, the deputies themselves would vote to determine the punishment for the king. Even if he was found to be a traitor, he would not automatically receive a traitor's death. All three votes would be decided by a simple majority of those present. This agreement on the pathway forward finally allowed the deputies to start voting. Importantly, it was far from clear to the deputies how these latter votes would result. Neither the Girondins nor the Montagnards had a majority in the convention, and the independent deputies of the plain would thus be critical in determining the outcome. They would determine the centre of gravity in the chamber. They would determine the fate of the king. On the first vote, there was little doubt as to its outcome. From the moment the king was placed on trial, the issue of the king's guilt was essentially a foregone conclusion. If the deputies declared him innocent, then it was they who were guilty. If the king hadn't betrayed the constitution of 1791, then they had. They had overthrown the monarchy. They had declared a republic. They had established a new national government. Failure to damn the king would have been akin to damning the revolution instead. This is why some Jacobins argued to skip a trial altogether. Because if the king wasn't guilty, the revolution was. Thus, when it came to voting on whether the king was guilty or innocent, the vote was almost a mere formality. Of those deputies who were present, not a single one found the king to be blameless. 693 deputies rendered the king guilty, while a small minority of 26 abstained from the vote. Some of these abstainers simply refused to be judges, while others belonged to the incredibly small minority who had argued against the legality of a trial in the first place. Interestingly, even amongst these 26 abstainers, more than half of them stated that they did believe the king to be guilty. With the king's guilt now determined, the deputies moved to the first real vote. Should there be an appeal to the people? This issue, perhaps more than any other, had gripped the convention for the previous three weeks. Girondins had demanded it. Montagnards had rejected it. Everyone had debated it. Now, we talked extensively on the appeal to the people in the last episode. But as a quick recap, what was being proposed was a national referendum in which the people themselves would directly determine the fate of the king. All sorts of variations of the idea were proposed, and critically, the Girondins themselves were hopelessly divided on just what the appeal to the people should be voting on. In the end, it was decided that the proposed referendum would offer voters a simple choice. Did they accept or reject? the convention's verdict that the king was guilty. The vote would not determine the punishment of the king, as some had suggested it should. Many Girondins supported the proposed referendum. The reasonings and justifications varied from deputy to deputy, but, simply put, they argued that just as the people had to be consulted on the future constitution, 
so too did they have to be consulted on the fate of the king. The people had granted the king inviolability in accepting the constitution of 1791. Thus, the people had to take it away. Others justified their motivations by pointing to the radicalism of Paris. They claimed that deputies were being threatened and intimidated, that clubs and societies were corrupting the trial by exerting their influence in revolutionary Paris. This alone was sufficient reason for a national vote. Anything else would be a miscarriage of justice due to external influences, at least according to these deputies. As one deputy put it, My opinion consists of this simple proposition. The sections of Paris have tried to influence the convention by petitions. To avoid being reproached for this influence, it is necessary that the entire nation be consulted. So, to ensure the people's will was reflected, to ensure that it was not just the views of Paris that were heard, the Girondins wanted a national vote. But all of this was a little convenient. For various reasons, some Girondins were determined to do what they could to ensure Louis's head remained attached to his body. Conveniently for such deputies, an appeal to the people would have delayed any potential execution of the traitorous king. This would give them time to argue in favour of an outcome many sought to achieve. Clemency. We discussed competing theories as to why some Girondins sought mercy for Louis in the last episode. Everything from wanting to prevent the expansion of the war, to fearing the powers of martyrdom, to just good old-fashioned secret royalism. The exact motivations differed from deputy to deputy, but they remain highly contentious debates amongst historians. But what's important here is this. Some Girondins wanted to spare the king, and they perceived that the best means to do so was a national referendum. By taking the matter to the people, they could argue for, and hopefully legitimise, their quest for mercy. Additionally, in the event of an unfavourable outcome, they could assign responsibility for the decision to the sovereign people. They could keep their conscience clean, and support the king's death in a manner which made it look like they hadn't just tamely followed the mountain's demand for Louis's head. Speaking of the mountain, the Montagnard deputies had other ideas. In general, the mountain championed what they considered to be the only appropriate course of action, a traitor's death for a traitorous king. They viewed any referendum as an invitation for civil war and unrest, as a means of potentially legitimising a great injustice in granting the king clemency. Their opponents had consistently resisted direct democracy, and the Girondins' sudden embrace was just more manoeuvrings from a faction obsessed with power. The convention had been elected to represent the people. It had been entrusted with complete sovereign power. It, and it alone, should determine the fate of the king. A national vote was a dangerous and unnecessary act. In the lead-up to the convention's vote on whether or not the referendum would occur, the outcome was far from clear. Historian Timothy Tackett notes that some Montagnards believed the Girondins would triumph and that the appeal to the people would succeed. Ultimately, it did not. 283 deputies voted in favour, 424 voted against. Needing a simple majority, proponents of the referendum barely mustered 40% of the vote. It was a crushing defeat, both for the Girondins and for the king. Before we move on to the third vote, the one which determined the fate of the king, it's worth exploring just how this result came to be. How was it that some Montagnards were prepared for defeat, and yet it was the Girondins who would lose, and lose by a considerable margin? How was it that the faction which had exerted an outsized influence over the revolution for more than a year had suffered a crushing and humiliating rout. 
there are two points worth noting. The first is the intervention of a deputy that we have not yet met. Bertrand Barrère was born into a wealthy family in the southwest of France in 1755. By the time he was 20, he was already a registered lawyer with the Parlement of Toulouse, and during his early years, he gained a reputation for being a talented essayist. In fact, historian Leo Gershoy goes as far as to state that by the time of the revolution, Barrère had garnered a reputation of being a brilliant and successful barrister. Aged 35 in 1789, he was elected to the Estates General to represent the Third Estate. Despite the noble heritage of his mother and the opportunities and rights that had provided him, Although his time as a deputy isn't as noteworthy as Robespierre's, he does feature prominently in David's famous sketch of the tennis court oath. You can find Barrere with one leg resting on the other, writing notes on the proceedings just to the left of the three clerics embracing in the centre. Elected to the convention in September 1792, Barrere was firmly on the political map by January 1793. Why? Well, Barrere had been the president of the convention in early December, meaning that he had been the president when charges were brought against Louis XVI. Furthermore, he had been president when Louis first appeared before the convention to defend himself on the 11th of December, meaning Barrere had played a leading role, really the leading role, in the initial examination and interrogation of the king. Associating with neither the Girondins nor the Montagnards, he was now one of the most prominent and respected members of the Plain, the term used to describe that mass of unaffiliated and independent deputies which controlled the balance of power. So, when Barrere came forth to make his views known on the matter of the appeal to the people, on the 4th of January, people paid attention. Barrere savaged the proposed referendum with a clarity and simplicity that few deputies had been able to achieve. Historian David Jordan states that Barrere had a talent for putting together other men's ideas in a coherent and convincing way. And here, Barrere did just that. In a speech that lasted hours, Barrere acknowledged that Louis' trial was unorthodox but insisted that it had been fair. Agreeing with Robespierre and the Mountain, Barrere stated that the appeal to the people was politically motivated, posed significant risks to the Republic, and ultimately was akin to the deputies abandoning the task which the people had ordered them to do. Penetrating the partisan politicking of recent months, Barrere succinctly presented a stark choice to his peers. The convention should act as the legitimate repository of sovereign power, just as it had been elected to do. To do otherwise was the same as abdicating its authority and purpose, and risked the end of the revolution itself. Historians from across the political spectrum note the impact of Barrere's intervention. Here was one of the most respected most popular, most prominent members of the plane, roundly rejecting the issue which had divided the convention so bitterly. As historian Simon Sharma notes, here was the arguments of the leading Jacobins without their partisan approaches, and the effect on the independent deputies of the plane was significant. Historian David Jordan writes, Barrere's intervention changed the course of the debates. In one stroke, he had swept aside all the rhetorical embellishments, all the factional and personal hatred, and exposed the convention not only to the essence of the appeal to the people, but the need for unified action. And because he was not attached to either the Jacobins or the Girondins, he appeared the voice of reason. So, Barrere's intervention on the 4th of January is one of the reasons often cited by historians to explain why the appeal to the people failed. Ultimately, 
the Girondins failed to convince enough members of the plane to join them, and the vocal rejection of the proposal by one of the plane's most influential members undoubtedly worked against Girondin interests. But there is something else worth noting here. Barrère had urged, pleaded even, that the convention take united action as it dealt with the fate of the king. Following months of bitter factional warfare, many deputies of the plane were tired. We discussed in episode 45, First Republic, then Dictatorship, that one of the outcomes of the relentless Girondin attacks on the mountain was the alienation and exasperation of members of the plane. This frustration and irritation of some deputies did the Girondins no favours as they sought to garner support. Furthermore, the impassioned calls for unity from an influential and unaligned deputy helped to sway these deputies towards the Jacobin position. For months, the Girondins had failed to cultivate meaningful ties with the deputies of the plain. They had tested the patience of these deputies with measures which some perceived to be overly political and factional in nature. And thus here, in one of the first monumental tests between the two factions, the chickens came home to roost. When the moment came to choose a side, the majority of deputies agreed with Barrere and voted with the mountain. Grey history is only possible thanks to the generous support of the listeners of this show. To ensure that there's more grey history for you in the future, as well as to access hours of exclusive bonus content and other fantastic perks, support the show on Patreon for as little as $2 per regular episode. There's no better value for the price of just half a cup of coffee, and you'll not only love the full-length bonus episodes, but the mini-episode extras which accompany the regular show. The episode extra for this episode explores the secret efforts by the Spanish government to influence the trial of the king, and you won't want to miss it. So Google Grey History Patreon, or follow the links in the show notes or on the website. Thank you so much to all the patrons of the show for doing their part to keep Grey History on the air. But, Barrere's intervention and the increasing alienation of many in the plain were not the only things working against the Girondins' efforts. There was another. The Girondins themselves. I've gone to great lengths to emphasise the fact that we cannot think of either the Montagnards or the Girondins as modern-day political parties. Furthermore, I've made the point that in the case of the Girondins, they were a faction so loosely tied together by a mixture of personal relationships and shared beliefs that some historians think the word faction is too strong a word. Well, it's here, in the King's trial, that the divisions of the Girondins are going to be stark. Leading Girondins, including Brousseau, Venu, and Petion, had all championed the appeal to the people, but others did not. The famed and respected philosopher Condorcet rejected the proposal, as did the journalist Carrar and the Girondin-aligned English-born American revolutionary Thomas Paine. That's right, one of the American founding fathers was a member of the French National Convention, a topic I hope to explore shortly in an upcoming joint episode. Getting back on track, the vote I actually want to emphasise here is neither Paine's nor Condorcet's, but Carras. For those with exceptional name recognition, and I do mean exceptional, you may remember that Carras was the Girondin deputy who had previously suggested that the Duke of Brunswick be installed as a potential replacement for Louis XVI as the King of France. Of course, that suggestion was before the Duke proceeded to march the Prussian armies across the frontier. But this incredibly impolitic proposal was one of the many ways that the Mountain proved their accusations that the Girondins were harbouring a royalist agenda. But on the issue of the appeal to the people, Carrar had a decisively anti-royalist approach. To him, the king was either guilty 
or innocent. And that was the one and only vote the convention needed to undertake. If he was guilty, then he deserved a traitor's death. And votes on both the appeal to the people and the appropriate punishment of the king were unnecessary. The point I'm making here is that even for a Girondin, whose writings were used by the Montagnards as proof of the Girondins' secret royalism, that deputy had no interest in either showing the king clemency or the appeal to the people. This underscores the fact that these votes on the king's fate were made by individual deputies, with individual perspectives and priorities. As such, the Girondins were far from united when the votes were tallied, and even those you would suspect to vote a particular way didn't necessarily do so. This was not the reason for their setback, but it was a contributing factor. Historian Gary Cates summarised it well when he stated that the Girondins partially defeated themselves. With the issue of the appeal to the people addressed, the convention turned its attention to the king's sentence. Should he be killed? Should he be banished? Should he be imprisoned for life? All sorts of ideas were discussed, and it was not clear which sentence would emerge victorious. Voting commenced at 8pm on January the 16th. That's right, 8pm. The vote's delay was caused in part by concerns about the Parisian populace and potentially the Parisian municipality exerting undue influence on the proceedings. The convention had spent the morning obsessed, panicked even, by rumours of death threats, prescription lists, and all manners of terrors which supposedly awaited those deputies who voted against death. The radicals of Paris demanded a traitor's death for the king, and there were real fears for those deputies who intended to vote for an alternative form of punishment. Of course, the supporters of the appeal to the people may have felt justified in their calls to remove the vote from Paris for precisely these reasons, but there was little they could do about it now. Eventually, the convention decided to proceed, helped in part by the urging of Danton, and so it wasn't until late in the evening that voting commenced. Given the gravity of their decision, many deputies felt the need to justify their actions as they voted one by one on the sentence of the king. Multiple historians suggest that perhaps even a majority of deputies chose to publicly explain their rationale, meaning that the vote lasted hours. As the proceedings dragged out, deputies tried to calculate when they would have to return from dinner in order to ensure that they were back in time to cast their individual vote. An action that I personally consider a responsible one, as you wouldn't want hanger influencing your decision. I know you wouldn't want me voting on an empty stomach. Nor would you want me voting on anything less than six hours sleep, which perhaps explains why some deputies fell asleep in the chamber and needed to be woken up for their turn to vote. Now, one thing I find fascinating about the trial is the atmosphere in which these deputies cast their votes. Depending on the sources, two contradicting pictures emerge. One comes from Brousseau, arguably the most famous Girondin deputy, and a staunch advocate for the appeal to the people. Brousseau had urged for the national referendum. He had fought hard to avoid this very moment, and yet his Republican heart couldn't help but admire the proceedings. Having once been at the vanguard of republicanism in France, he watched with a distinctive sense of pride. Brousseau recorded the trial as follows. It was the most imposing spectacle that men had ever witnessed, seeing more than 700 citizens chosen by 25 million of their fellows to exercise their powers, mount, each in his turn, to the tribune and express his opinion on the fate of the man who had ruled, a short time ago, the destinies of a great nation. 
Brissot continued. The patriotism and the probity of the majority, the enlightenment of most, the talents of several, added a new interest to the importance of the occasion. Oh, if the entire nation could have heard its representatives. For Brousseau, a committed Republican, the sight of a free people trying their former and treasonous monarch was admirable. He may have hoped to have avoided this moment. He may have argued in favour of the appeal to the people. But now that it was here, now that the people governed kings, he couldn't help but admire it just a little. Others shared less flattering views of the proceedings. As always, the convention's galleries were full of members of the public, and some were critical of what they perceived to be baseness and depravity. One deputy wrote of spectators eating fruit and drinking liquor as they watched the trial in a rowdy and merry manner, similar to fans at a modern-day sports game. Indeed, the deputy likened the situation to a theatre box. The uppermost galleries, kept open for the common people, were filled with foreigners and people from all walks of life. They drank wine and brandy as if they were in some low, smoke-filled tavern. At all the cafes in the neighbourhood, bets were being laid on the outcome. So, it's in this chaotic chamber of disparities that the deputies proceeded to vote. A hall where the enlightened representatives reasoned their historic decision with great speeches and careful consideration as members of the sovereign nation drank, laughed, booed, and gambled. As each deputy ascended the tribune, their votes and their underpinning logic varied dramatically. As a result, it didn't take long for, you guessed it, another unexpected turn in events. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The deputies were making it up as they went along. The early intervention of a deputy named Jean Merle underscores this point. Merle cast the very first vote, and he voted for death. This in and of itself perhaps wasn't that surprising. Merle was the deputy who back in November presented to the convention the case that the body could and should try the king, having chaired one of the committees which investigated the matter. Having advocated that the king must be tried, arguing in support of a punishment fit for a traitor was potentially to be expected. But what occurred next was not. Here is Merle's vote, and I want you to think about not only how you interpret it, but how else it could be interpreted. Merle declared, By a consequence that appears natural to me, as a result of the opinion I have already given on the first question, I vote for death. I will make a simple observation. If death has the majority, I believe it would be worthy of the National Convention to examine if it might be useful to delay the time of execution. I return to the question, and I vote for death. Having declared himself in favour of death, Merle then suggested that the convention examine if there was merit in delaying the execution. But, was his vote for death conditional on the fact that the convention deliberate further, or was this proposed examination just a friendly suggestion. This was critical because if the king's execution was delayed, reprieve became a possibility. The longer the king's head remained attached to his body, the greater chance that clemency would allow it to remain so. What Merle had done was provide a new pathway for avoiding the king's death, even in the event that the convention voted in favour of execution. Merle had found an option which allowed the deputies to condemn the traitor to a traitor's death, and then 
avoid the act of regicide by subsequently showing mercy to the former king. Thus, Merlin's vote was both innovative and ambiguous. It was also controversial. Rumours of bribes and plots have since surrounded his actions, and in the episode extra for this episode, I'll be discussing foreign efforts to alter the course of the trial. And before anyone assumes that it's the British, it's not always the British, it's actually the work of the Spaniards that we'll be focusing on. It's not something you want to miss, and that episode extra, along with hours of other exclusive bonus content, will be available for the Patreon supporters of the show. So don't wait, go sign up right now. Whatever was motivating Mela, what is clear for all to see is the impact of this development. Fresh uncertainty was injected into the trial as new possibilities, and potentially yet more votes, were added to the equation. There was now new ways to save the king, even if the convention voted for his death. This unexpected event was then amplified by another early voter, one who gave Merle's proposition a considerable boost, and a boost from the most unlikeliest of places. Despite telling associates the day before that he would not vote to condemn the king, and despite voting in favour of the appeal to the people, one prominent Girondin deputy shocked the convention with their vote. Perhaps the most famous and admired of all the Girondin speakers, when it was Vernieu's turn to vote, he did not vote for banishment or exile, but instead adopted Merle's position. Despite having previously warned of the dangers of martyrdom, Vernieu voted for death and supported the convention holding a fourth vote on whether or not there was grounds for delay and ultimately clemency. He stated plainly, The law speaks. It says death. But in pronouncing this terrible word, worried about the fate of my country, about the dangers that menace liberty itself, about all the blood that might be shed, I express the same wish as Merla, and ask that it might be submitted to discussion by the Assembly. Here again, the Girondins were divided, this time on the matter of the King's punishment. Despite arguing in favour of clemency, despite supporting the appeal to the people, when push came to shove, Venu voted for death. Or at least, death with a possible outclause. The support of such a notable Girondin in favour of execution was influential. So too was its timing. Venu, representing the department of the Gironde, was in the third group of deputies to vote, with deputies voting by departments. This early declaration by one of the Girondin's most prominent members, had significant consequences. Louis XVI's lawyers lamented as such. As they heard the vote of Vernieu, they remarked to each other that all was lost. They had incorrectly assumed, as had many, that Vernieu would vote in favour of imprisonment or exile. Instead, he chose a different path, and others followed. Historian Hippolyte Taine references the memoirs of one deputy to claim that Vernieu's decision influenced perhaps 15 or 20 votes. Once I tell you the final tally, you'll understand just how significant such a figure would have been. To digress for just a moment, it is also noteworthy that the sudden reversal of Vernieu has raised suspicions amongst the most conservative of historians. Some suspected intimidation and fear of the Parisian revolutionaries as motivating factors for influencing both Vernieu's vote as well as those of other deputies. Ultimately, however, these are just theories. Vernieu himself never stated that any intimidation impacted his vote. Instead, he claimed that he had to place the public welfare ahead of the life of just one man. With multiple options being voted on, 
the outcome of the vote was actually hard to predict. At times, death held a slim majority, while at others, a lesser form of punishment took the lead. It appeared that the would-be regicides were about equal in number to those opposed to the king's death. The latter group may have been split between imprisonment, exile, or some other form of penalty, but taken together, their numbers were substantial. With the vote almost evenly split, it was time for the voice of Paris to be heard. The Parisian deputies came forth to vote, and Maximilien Robespierre led the way. No prizes for guessing his vote. Robespierre, ever capable of a great speech, proclaimed his rationale for death. He announced that he refused to recognise a humanity that massacres the people and pardons despots. He proclaimed that their duty as deputies was to cement public liberty through the execution of the tyrant, and he attacked those who stood against such an outcome. Despite his earlier opposition to the death penalty, Robespierre saw no contradiction in his stance, but instead lamented the hypocrisy of others. It was those who defended capital punishment, only to then seek clemency for the king, who were the true hypocrites. Joining him in his vote were many of the mountain's leaders. Danton loudly announced his vote in favour of death. He dismissed the idea that the convention could not judge the king, and he forcefully rejected the argument that the armies of Europe would be kept at bay by keeping Louis alive as a hostage. Marat likewise called for the death of the king, which really should come as no surprise to anyone given his loud advocacy for mass slaughter. Marat stated plainly that he believed Louis to be the principal author of the bloodshed of the 10th of August, and he also held Louis responsible for all the massacres which had stained the nation since the revolution commenced. Consequently, he voted for death and stated that it should occur within 24 hours. But the most interesting vote of the Parisian deputies came last. That was the vote of Philippe Egalité, the former Duc d'Orléans, the king's own cousin. By this point in time, Philippe Egalité was aligned with the Montagnard faction, and his shared blood with the accused naturally made his vote one of extreme interest. Robespierre had suggested that the deputy had the best grounds of all to recuse himself from the trial, but the former duke refused. Instead, he insisted to do his duty. Appearing on the tribune, the royal deputy announced this vote. Only concerned with my duty, convinced that all those who have attacked or will later attack the sovereignty of the people deserve death, I vote for death. The former Duke's vote was met with murmurs and the occasional boo, but it was not terribly surprising. Philip Egalité associated with the mountain, and he voted as such. For some sceptical onlookers, his vote reflected his desire for a crown, and the rumours that the Montagnards planned to replace one bourbon with another. Against these votes for death were, of course, many Girondins. While Vernieu had voted for Merle's proposition of death alongside potential deliberations on the matter of delay, other Girondins were not so willing for the blade to fall. We heard in the last episode arguments from Girondins in favour of a more lenient penalty, everything from the risks of escalating the war with Europe to the dangers the king could pose as a martyr. Here again, as the deputies cast their votes, some of that reasoning was rehashed, along with lamenting that the appeal to the people had failed. Brousseau and the Robespierre antagonist Louvet consistently sought a more moderate path, and their votes reflected as such. They acknowledged that death was the appropriate punishment for a traitor, and thus voted for execution, but they also attached conditions to those votes that would significantly postpone the sentence for months, if not years. As a result, 
Their votes opened up the possibility of clemency for the king, once again fueling rumours of royalism amongst the Girondins. Of course, as discussed in the last episode, Brousseau had used the preceding weeks to argue against executing the king, on the grounds that it would dangerously and needlessly escalate the war with Europe, by prompting new powers to enter the fray. Thus, his conditional vote for death reflected the policy he had previously advocated, that of clemency and moderation. Separately, other prominent Girondins outright rejected any form of capital punishment, dispensing with Brousseau's method of death with unrealistic conditions attached. These strict anti-regicides included the philosopher Condorcet and the American revolutionary Thomas Paine. However, once again, the Girondins were divided. In fact, they were hopelessly divided. Isnard, Barbaro, and Gessonet all voted for the death penalty, while others followed Vernieu's lead and supported the ambiguous Merleau proposal. These included Bouzeau, Gordet, and the former Parisian mayor Petion. In total, a noteworthy minority of the Girondins voted for execution, some with the sort of unrestrained and zealous enthusiasm that you might expect from their Jacobin rivals. Thus, while the Montagnard deputies stood united in favour of a prompt execution, the Girondins were scattered, possessing contradicting and disparate views. Ultimately, this disunity would cost them dearly, and it would cost Louis too. The outcome of the vote was not determined until the very end. A photo finish, if you will. With a simple majority required, the magic number was 361, after you accounted for those deputies not attending the convention for various reasons. When the deputies of the last department were called forth to vote, those in favour of death tallied at 359. The end was near, and only two votes separated the king and execution. The determining vote was cast by a deputy named Jean-Henri Volon. The deputy representing the department of Gare was a Jacobin, a lawyer, and a Protestant. With the deputies after Volon voting for alternative options, the king had been sentenced to death at the last moment by a majority of one. The king was sentenced to death by the slimmest of majorities, one single vote. This is often the story you'll hear as to the trial of King Louis, that one vote separated him between life and death. But it's not quite the case. In fact, it's quite a misleading way to represent the final outcome. It is true to say that a simple majority of one condemned the king to death unconditionally, but not every alternative vote was in favour of saving the king. In addition to the 319 deputies who voted for some sort of punishment other than death, more than 20 deputies had supported Merle's formula of death alongside the suggestion of a new discussion on the possibility of delay. Separately, one deputy had voted in favour of death on the condition that it was taken to a national vote, while two others echoed execution on the condition that the sentence was only carried out once peace had been achieved. Finally, a small handful of representatives supported execution on the condition that all Bourbons, including the now deputy Philippe Egalité, were exiled from France. Taken together, the votes in favour of some form of death penalty were actually much greater than a majority of one. Sure, it was a small majority. Sure, the votes had conditions attached. But a clear majority of deputies supported execution nonetheless. However, there was just one problem. The deputies were making history. They had voted to execute the king. But, when considering votes for unconditional death alone, the deputies had condemned the king by the smallest margin possible. As a result, questions started to be asked. 
24 deputies had not voted due to some reason or another, primarily due to sickness or being away for official business. Could the convention really execute the king when missing deputies could conceivably change the outcome? Furthermore, many deputies had voted with conditions. Yes, an unconditional majority favoured death, but those in favour of alternatives were essentially just as numerous, especially with the ambiguity of the potential votes of absentee deputies. Thus, many in the convention were unnerved by the course of history being determined by such a narrow margin, by a majority of one. The deputies therefore decided to embark on some, well, let's call it creative accounting. They subsequently reframed the tally, and on the 18th, they classified those who had supported Merle's ambiguous vote for death followed by discussion to be considered votes in favour of regicide. The new tally totaled 387 in favour of death, 334 in favour of some other punishment. The majority for death was now much clearer. But this final result hardly settled the matter. Those seeking mercy for the king were undeterred, and they continued to seek clemency for the former monarch. Once again, the convention descended into a pit of chaos. Deputies came forth to propose suggestion after suggestion. Some deputies sought to postpone the execution until the end of the war. Others saw no need for delay. Some proposed the sentence only be carried out once the new constitution had been ratified, while others were told that another September massacres would erupt if the deputies failed to finish the trial once and for all. Brousseau warned of war with all of Europe. Robespierre demanded immediate execution. Payne lobbied for banishment to the United States. And all of the legislature was once more in disarray. For the second time, the debate was settled by the intervention of Bertrand Barère. Once again slicing through the rancorous discourse, Barère brought insight and clarity. He warned that Louis's life would paralyse the convention, and that nothing else would be addressed, while the fate of the king remained unsettled. He argued that the king's death was required to destroy royal superstitions, and that the health and safety of the republic thus required his execution to go ahead. Finally, he cautioned that Louis's fate would become the subject of treaties, and that it would be determined not by justice, but by the military situation on the frontiers. A free people could not allow a traitor to escape execution through the intervention of chance. In order to establish their republic, in order to destroy the shackles of monarchy, in order to succeed against all of Europe, the king had to die. Clemency, delay, mercy, all of these could not be considered. Following Barère's intervention, the representatives of the nation agreed to an immediate vote. Would there be a reprieve in the execution of the judgment of Louis Capet? Yes or no? The answer was no. With a simple majority requiring 346 due to absent deputies, those who voted in favour of clemency numbered only 310. Instead, it was the 380 deputies who voted against mercy who carried the day, a solid and definitive majority. After weeks of venomous debates, the result was finally clear. Louis would die. Thank you for listening to episode 48, The Trial of the King, part 3. In the next episode, we'll be unpacking the final weeks of Louis XVI's life, his treatment in prison, and the conditions in which he lived. We'll also be covering his execution, along with the monumental impact this event had on the development of the revolution. The episode extra for this episode will explore Spanish efforts to influence the course of the trial, who said secret foreign interference was just a recent invention. A reminder that now is the time to send in any questions or queries you may have for the upcoming Q&A episode. 
as well as comments or opinions you may want to share on the King's trial. Also, for those who can't wait, part four on the King's trial is ready and waiting for you right now on Patreon for the True Revolutionary tier and above. As always, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you find it entertaining, if you find it educational, then help do your part to ensure that there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow. Gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content, a range of behind-the-scenes perks, and of course, an ad-free feed by supporting the show on Patreon. It costs as little as $2 per regular episode, and it's the best way you can secure yourself more Grey History. Thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon, including the extraordinarily generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Christy, and Charles. Thank you for listening, Happy New Year, and have a great day.